Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, we devote the program to a discussion of the outside world's reaction to two crises in the Middle East, in Syria and Iran. Joining me in the studio are the FT's defence correspondent, James Blitz, and our energy editor, Javier Blas, and on the line from Washington, Jeff Dyer, one of our correspondents there. Jeff, uh, there's a lot of talk, I know, in, uh, in, in Washington about the, the prospect of, of conflict with Iran, but for the moment, is that being displaced by this gathering crisis in Syria? Which, which is commanding more attention? Well, I think they're both commanding equal attention. I mean, if you listen to the Republican debate last night, you saw that these were the two and really only two foreign policy issues that were, uh, you know, that people seem to be interested in. Um, but there has been a very, very you know, intense public debate about what to do about Syria, quite an emotional debate in lots of ways in, in this country. But also the Iran issue um, is constantly on the front burner. And we're having the Israeli prime minister here in a couple of weeks, so I think will bring potentially that issue uh, even more to the forefront. On Syria, is there much appetite for, for American intervention? I get the sense that President Obama and his administration are pretty hesitant. What's the public mood? The public mood is, uh, is very much in favour that something should be done. Um, constant video on the television about these horrific scenes from homes and other places around, uh, other cities around Syria, seeing all the artillery bombings. And there is just this, this building public mood that something should be done. But in the administration, there are... I imagine some people who are pushing for a greater form of engagement um, you know, from the administration, but it does seem that the Pentagon, at least, is, is very reluctant. There were some very strong statements at the weekend from General Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, saying that this really wasn't the right time. We didn't know who we were dealing with in terms of the Syrian opposition, and this just wasn't the sort of situation that the U.S. should be getting into. James, you're covering this meeting of the Friends of Syria and Tunis and the situation generally. There is, we've heard, this call for something to be done. What's your best bet on what actually will be done? I think very little in terms of military or quasi-military options. I think the view is that, in, in marked contrast to Libya last year, there simply is no appetite for any kind of military action or arming of the rebels in any way. The situation in Syria is far more complex, as everybody knows, and in particular, you've got the situation that both Russia and Iran are giving pretty firm support to the Assad regime. So any kind of intervention immediately opens you up to a much wider set of challenges that you, than you had in Libya. I think the focus for Friends of Syria on Friday is going to be to get the Syrian opposition to be much more coherent and vocal and declaratory about what they want to see happening. Although it's now one year since the Syrian uprising began, there's a strong sense that the Syrian opposition groups really haven't come together properly and effectively. There aren't clear leaders and they don't have a sufficiently strong relationship with the Syrian opposition on the ground inside the country. And so that, I think, is where there's going to be an important emphasis. But this is very incremental stuff compared to what we saw in Libya last year. There's just no sense that it can go any further than that for the time being. 
And are the Western governments clear in their own mind that, that Assad has to go, or is there some at least anxiety about what might replace him? Well, I think the declared position of all Western governments, the US, the UK, most of the Europeans, is that Assad has to go, that we are past the point uh, where he could possibly stay. I think beyond that, there are two points. The first is, it's not absolutely certain that he will go. I think the view inside the British government, for instance, the one that's been given to David Cameron, is there is still a, somebody put it to me, a 15 to 20% chance that he will ride out this whole thing in the same way that the Iranians rode out the 2009 rebellion against uh, the Hamenei leadership. So that's one thing. And I think, secondly, there is a concern that if you did see a complete implosion inside Syria uh, and you saw the civil war escalate to new levels and you effectively saw Assad going and crisis, it's very uncertain whether that would be in Western interests at the end of the day. You would see such huge inter-ethnic conflict. Uh, you would see all the countries surrounding Syria involved, Turkey, Iraq, Israel and so on. And of course, there is one other thing as well, which isn't talked about enough, which is that Syria does have considerable chemical weapon stocks. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty, rarely spoken about, but much on the minds of the securocrats in the UK and Washington, which is what actually would happen with these very considerable stocks. You don't want to see them getting out of control. So those are the security concerns. But uh, what about the, the economic concerns, Javier? I mean, above all, oil. We've seen the oil price going up and up, uh, even at a period when the global economy isn't so strong. Um, it, it, does the Syria effect play into that? I've never thought of Syria as a particularly huge oil producer. It is a small oil producer, but uh, the European Union has imposed sanctions in, into Syria. The European Union was the big consumer of uh, Syrian oil, and that those sanctions have removed about 150,000 barrels a day. That In the global context, it's not a, a big amount of oil, but it's a reminder of the volatility of the region, and if you add 150,000 from Syria, about 250,000 that we are losing uh, because unrest and strikes in Yemen, uh, we obviously we have not recovered yet uh, from the uh, civil war in Libya. Uh, Libya produced about 1.6 million barrels a day uh, before the war, and it's producing about 900,000, so it's about halfway. And obviously, that is... Uh, making the market very nervous. The market realized that we can lose supplies very easily because of the unrest in the region. And obviously, that is making the situation in Iran worse because everyone, what is assuming is, what if what is happening now in Syria, we lost the supplies, happened in Iran that is a much bigger producer. So answer that question for me. I mean, it's going to happen in Iran, isn't it? Because we impose these oil sanctions. I, I think it's going to happen before the deadline of the 1st of July. Uh, the European Union countries are going to stop buying. There's going to be about half a million barrels that are going to need to be replaced. Uh, we know, give me an idea. What percentage of the world market is half a million barrels? Well, it's a very small percentage, but uh, at the end of the day, the global market is about 90 million barrels. So we are talking about 0.5% of that. But uh, it's the marginal barrel of oil which sets the price. So even losing that, it, it just has a, a minimal impact on, on the market. But at the same time, it's not only the European Union sanctions. It's Washington with, with sanctions against the, the Central Bank of, of Iran and uh, any institution that is dealing with the Central Bank of Iran. The Central Bank of Iran is processing all the payments of oil. So it means that countries such as Japan, South Korea, even India and China are moving to reduce the amount of oil that they are buying from Iran. And when you reduce the amount of oil that you buy from Iran, you have to go elsewhere to buy it and pay a price, and that usually is Saudi Arabia. 
So what are we looking for in terms of the oil price and in the knock-on effect on the global economy? Is this a real threat to global economic health, do you think? I, I, I think it is a, a real threat to global economic uh, growth. Uh, this week in London, we have had what is called the International Petroleum Week, that is the biggest gathering of the industry, particularly the oil traders here. And I, I spoke at the beginning of the week with uh, Beetle, that is the largest independent oil trading house. It's very little known outside the, the oil industry, but it's, it's a huge trader. It just uh, Beetle uh, trades enough oil to supply at the same time France, Italy and Germany all together. And the chief executive was telling me that he sees $120 as the new floor for the market. And he thinks that it's unlikely, but it is possible that we will see oil prices going above the record of 2008 of $150. But you have to remind that at the end of the day, what matters for consumers here in Europe is the price in local currency in euro and sterling pounds. And in those currencies, the oil price is already at a record high. It's it's more expensive today to buy a barrel of oil in sterling pounds or euros than it was at the peak in 2008. And Jeff, of course, this is just with sanctions, but there is the threat more and more talked about of actual armed conflict between Iran and maybe Israel, maybe even a wider conflict involving the US and, and Europe. Give me a sense of the, the state of the debate in Washington. I mean, Leon Panetta, the defense secretary, was sort of let it be known off the record, on the record, that, that he thinks that it, there's a likelihood that Israel will attack in the coming months. How seriously is that view shared? Well, definitely there's been a change in the atmosphere here. Almost everyone who's been to Israel in the last few months has come back um, with these rather alarming stories saying that you know, the Israelis really are very serious this time um, and they're not just bluffing and there's a very good chance it's going to happen. But it, there are other things involved here as well. I mean, the, the curious thing about this sort of drumbeat for war is that the administration itself is being so publicly opposed to it. You had comments from General Dempsey again at the weekend. You had the, the head intelligence officer, James Clapper, last week uh, going to the Hill and saying that they still don't think that any decision has been made by the Iranians about whether to pursue a nuclear bomb. And the, and the curious thing about that, those comments from Liam Panetta you were talking about is that while all the attention went on his comments saying that Israel could bomb in the spring, the other thing that he allegedly said in this uh, uh, to this journalist was that the U.S. would not assist Israel in any shape or form. So it's almost as if it was a public warrant to the Israelis, don't try and drag us into this because we're not going to, to help. So if there is a drumbeat to war, it's one that you know, publicly and in private Washington is resisting very much. How does the presidential election play into it, though? Well, on the one hand, three of the four Republican candidates do seem to be in favor of, if not explicitly bombing Iran tomorrow, a much more aggressive posture towards Iran, Ron Paul being the exception. And the debates and the campaign is providing a kind of sounding board for these types of views um, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. Yet, at the same time, as, as Javier was saying, one of the big economic risks, maybe the central economic risk facing the U.S. now is oil prices, given that the euro situation seems to be a little bit more stable than it was a few months ago. So um, maybe the, you know, the big risk, one of the big economic risks for President Obama is that oil prices really spike up and that's, that stifles, that smothers the kind of nascent recovery we're seeing in America at the moment. So he's walking a very, very kind of narrow tightrope at the moment. On the one hand, he's trying to show the Israelis that he's doing, he's very serious about pressure on Iran, he's serious about these sanctions, he's trying to persuade them not to bomb Iran, yet at the same time, you know, they're trying not to push the sanctions so hard that it will cause oil prices to spike and, and, and stifle the recovery in the economy. James, we have heard all of this before. I mean, I, I've 
think probably for a decade now there's been this sort of on again off again debate about will Israel bomb will Iran get the bomb and so on but it does feel to me a little bit different this year more intense more serious is that your impression Yes, there's no question that it is. There's no question that, as Jeff has said, that people that have been to Israel or when they've met Israelis who've come to Europe and the US take the view that Israel is being pretty serious about the idea of an attack this year. It does so because of this issue we haven't discussed, which is the idea that the Iranians are moving their capability, their uranium enrichment capability, into what Ehud Barak, the defense minister, calls this zone of immunity, which therefore cannot be attacked. And that is the thing that is worrying. That said... I think there are a number of issues that also need to be taken into account. Something we haven't mentioned, first of all, is that there's a whole new phase now into which this debate is going, and that is negotiations. We're going to be seeing the US and its allies and world powers, Russia, China, Britain, France, Germany, entering into a negotiation with Iran in the next few weeks and months to see whether the Iranians will make the key confidence-building concessions cannot be completely ruled out that they will. The pressures on them are so great. And so we need to see what's going to happen. Of course, while all those talks are going on, it's very difficult for the Israelis to act. They'll be seeing negotiations happening in Istanbul, Vienna, Geneva, probably in the next few months. And so um, that is going to slow things down in terms of timetables. The one thing that's absolutely clear is that the international community does not have the time it had in 2009 to watch the Iranians going into this merry dance over talks. If the Iranians are going to make a concession, it's got to be in the next six months. It's got to be a serious confidence-building one, and that is the thing one's now got to wait to see whether that happens. Javier, what's the attitude in the Gulf? Because we hear a lot about Israeli pressure, but the Saudis are pretty scared of the idea of an Iranian bomb and, according to WikiLeaks, even seem to be putting pressure on the Americans to attack. Well, we, we know that the private attitude on, on Saudi Arabia is that, uh, in reality, they will love that Israel bombs, carpet bombs Tehran and sends the regime just, just down. Uh, obviously, what is happening, uh, Saudi Arabia is producing as much oil as has produced in 30 years. It's wrapping almost... Uh, record high prices. So from an economic uh, economic point of view, if you are sitting in the treasury or the government of Kuwait, Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, this is a fantastic windfall. They are producing lots of oil. They are taking a lot of money uh, out of it. Uh, don't forget also Russia. Russia is one of the countries who is benefiting the most from an economic point of view of what is happening. Russia is the second largest oil producer. It's selling massive amount of oil at, at almost at a record high, and it's selling it at, at a very high price. So it, it is very similar to the economic expansion that we witnessed in 2007, 2008 uh, in Russia when, when prices were at record levels. And this is obviously playing better. Very, very, very nicely for uh, Vladimir Putin going into uh, elections this year. But the attitude, however, is one of concern of how the European Union and the U.S. have worked into these sanctions and how much oil is going to be removed from the international market and the potential for uh, things getting out of control, oil prices rocketing to plus $150. And that on the long term is something that Saudi Arabia doesn't like because they, they want uh, to keep oil uh, around $100. But just uh, adding to what um, James was adding in terms of the climate, uh, to the oil traders oil executives have been talking this week, they think that the current situation on the oil market and the, the geopolitics of the Middle East is very much the same that we have in late 2002 ahead of the war with, with Iraq. It's just that kind of sentiment that we are heading to something that is going to be very damaging for the oil market and, and that is almost a sentiment that no one can stop it. 
uh, and that's why the, the market is getting a bit carried away mm. and we are seeing these prices going up because a, a lot of people on the oil market say, seem to believe well, we were already here. This is around September of 2002 and we know what happened six months later. Jeff, in Washington, perhaps I'll finish with you then. This, we heard from Javier this sense amongst oil traders, at least, a sense that nobody can stop it. But is is that the feeling in Washington? Because you mentioned a couple of times the Pentagon, the intelligence community, the people who will be, after all, be called upon to fight, very much appearing to be unwilling and trying to, to hold things back. Well, I think, as James was saying, that you know, the key next phase is how this whole negotiation uh, proposal pans out. Um, you know, the Iranians have now come back and said they are potentially willing to talk. So, you know, there are lots of consultations going on. We'll get some sort of sense in the next few weeks as to how that, that is going to progress. Um, the problem is there's the space for these negotiations. The political space is narrowing. There's uh, particularly in this country, there's so much skepticism about Iran and its intentions and what it really is up to that it's going to be very hard for the administration um, to really uh, embrace this negotiation track wholeheartedly, it's going to come under a lot of political pressure. And underlining that, there's still a lot of confusion as to what really is the ultimate point of the sanctions. I mean, publicly, the sanctions are there to try and um, encourage, propel the Iranians to take negotiations seriously. But yet some people see that actually it should, they should have a different view. The sanctions should be really enforced very rigidly and really be used as a, as a, as a weapon to try and force regime change, to try and you know, encourage the opposition movement to take the streets in Iran again and to try and you know, have another heave to push the regime out. And those are two fundamentally contradictory objectives. You can't really have them too. You can't be trying to push the regime out at the same time as force them to negotiate. So there, there's a kind of lack of clarity behind what the point of the sanctions as well, which is creating a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty, um, and, and adding to this geopolitical tension. Well, I'm sure we'll return to it in the coming weeks. Jeff Dyer in Washington, thank you very much indeed. And thanks also to James Blitz and Javier Blas here in the studio in London. That's it for this week. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.